Adam already opened us in prayer, so let's get focused. So you have two outlines in front of you. Hi, Haley. Um, so the one that's called that says Rediscovering Restoring Biblical Christianity Series, they both say that because that's the name of the series. Then the one that says Rediscovering and Restoring His Pattern, uh, emphasis one and two titles and brief review is what we're going to do tonight. The other one that says Rediscovering or Rethinking and Restoring Rebuilding His Pattern, that's what we did the first, what, two or three weeks? Have we done, is this the fourth week already? So it took us three weeks to review this one teaching. And uh, this series um, is a series that we're doing that if you look at the, look at the one that we said we already did on the back, you'll see that it, there's 15 biblical emphasis for rediscovery. And I put some uh, synonym type of words next to it, like rethink, reexamine, reconsider. So our basic, pos our basic uh, hypothesis in this teaching is that the Bible-believing Christianity that emerged in the late 19th century out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy is probably some of the least biblical Christianity that's ever been on the planet. And uh, we have various paradigms that we approach Scripture with, that is, various ways that we've been preconditioned to interpret Scripture that we think are scriptural, but they actually reduce the message of Christianity. And that when uh, part of the way we can know that, if you'll look at, uh, go back on that same outline to where it's at, uh, Roman numeral one, where it says restoring a biblical perspective. When we looked at the New Testament church turning the world upside down, when we looked at what salt, the function of salt in the ancient world was, and we looked at the function of gates for defense, we basically said that the, the New Testament Christians entered a very similar world in the Roman Empire to, to uh, what Western, the Western world and in terms of its philosophical presuppositions, and it conquered that world in less than five centuries and turned that world upside down. And in fact, when they're accused of turning the world upside down in Acts chapter 17, that is less than one century, or one century, one, one uh, generation after the resurrection of Christ. Approximately 30 years later, biblically, a generation is considered to be 40 years. And they were, uh, you know, they were so accused of turning the Roman Empire upside down that they were already viewed as a threat to the statist, humanistic worldview of ancient pagan cultures. All ancient cultures... Uh, were believers in politics. They were believers in the state and that the state will save us from social evils and moral evils and economic evils and so forth. And so what we need to do better by, uh, by mankind is a change in who the emperor is or who the senators are or something. And of course, you know that that's a very strong idea in our culture today. And the Bible has nothing to do with that. The Bible uh, doesn't put any hope in civil government being an agent of good change or so forth. It puts uh, its hope in Christ and his church as being an agent for, for cultural and social change. And so a lot of what this series is about is what would it take to restore not only biblical thinking, but to rebuild that in terms of a biblical church way of life. 
And we're basically saying that the Christianity that we've all experienced and lived up till now, everyone in this room, is uh, very sub-biblical, much more than we know. And we're actually challenging us to, to say, not in a holier-than-thou spirit, but more in a, Lord, save us, Lord, help us, Lord, restore your people. Uh, for instance, the book of Haggai which is one of the three minor prophets that was after the exile. There's nine minor prophets before the exile and three after. In the book of Haggai, it says, Is there any among you who saw the glory of the former house? The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. And that's actually a principle is that every grain of wheat must fall into the earth and die. And when it's resurrected, it brings forth fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And we would say that God took Israel through a 2,000-year historical process where Israel lost its way and found it again, and lost its way and found it again. And so has the church, and it was necessary that the church, uh, the church rose in its, in its influence and so forth for more than 1,000 years. But the church also began to decline uh, at a certain point, and there have been various movements uh, in the last they were, we're actually about to celebrate uh, at the end of next month the 500th anniversary of martin luther nailing his 95 thesis to the door of the wittenberg chapel there's been various renewal and restoration movements in the church in church history but what we're postulating is that god has something much deeper much more biblically accurate and much bigger than what the reformation was that he's about to do and the issue is, are we going to go deep enough in our biblical studies to be a part of it instead of doing Christianity the same old, same old? You know, there was a famous football coach who once said, the height of insanity is to do things the same way and expect different results. Now, you often hear people quote that and say that Einstein said it, but he didn't. <laughs> but it's still a good saying. And uh, who's the other? Oh, it's, somebody else is always attributed to saying that who also didn't say it. But, um, you know, uh, I haven't shared my testimony here, but pretty much my life has been uh, in 1974 as a result of uh, five months of studying 10 hours a day. I, I really came deeply to the conclusion that the Christianity of our culture is not very biblical. And I began to say, how would we have, what would we have to do to find it, to find a, uh, and, and build a biblical Christianity again? And um, that's, uh, some of you know my wife, that's been the quest we've been on since the early 70s. I don't know how much of it we've found, but we're organizing our thinking around these 15 emphases. And we've uh, been doing this series. This is our third year on this series. It will take uh, this school year. Hopefully by the end of next school year, we'll finish this series. It may take another school year after that. I don't know. <clears throat> so... Um, so tonight, we're going to actually uh, go to the other line, outline, and I'm just going to review for because we've picked up some new people and lost some people and so forth, but uh, when we first started doing this uh, uh, Tuesday night Bible study, a good turnout was if Bob Timer and I had a third person that showed up. <laughs> we were like, okay, Beth came, so now we got three people this week, let's do that's. Now we're growing, and uh, so uh, each year we've had a few more people, and and um, 
So not all of you. Of course, we did, uh, the, we did another series called the Search the Scripture series, which is uh, 39 parts. And, of course, as you know, many of my parts take four or five weeks per part. And uh, so uh, we did that for a couple of years. And uh, uh, we started this series. This is the third school year on this series. So all we're trying to do in the first half of this semester is review what we've covered the last two years. Emphasis one and two uh, were therefore from the fall of 2015, and then emphasis three, which hopefully will be two by next week is my hope, um, that was the spring semester of 2016. And uh, emphasis three and four were covered. Then last year we did emphasis five, restoring the whole Bible as one book and taking Bible study to another level and all that. We did that for the whole school year. And we looked at various uh, hermeneutical presuppositions, that is, various philosophies of how to study the scripture as being what has reduced the Christianity of our culture from a truly biblical Christianity that should turn the world upside down and should not be that compatible with Western middle class culture, to be honest. Uh, no one looks at Christianity as a threat to Western middle class culture today, nor does anyone uh, look at Christianity as all that serious. And so we're postulating that, um, you know, in the, in the 80s, uh, when I first actually, the first time I did this series, it was only 28 parts, not 250 parts. But uh, <laughs> these things have a tendency to escalate on me, as you know. But um, first time I did this, I taught it at three different churches, one in Dayton, one in a little town called New Carlisle, Medway area, uh, not far from where the Berks live and one in Columbus at Ohio State University. And uh, it was only 28 parts at the time. And uh, so, um, you know, over the years, I've continued to think about this subject and it's kind of gotten, gotten out of control on me. So um, then we, we also looked uh, at uh, this Roman numeral two on the first page, the rediscovering the pattern. A big part of this uh, thesis of this series is that there are patterns in that so-called Bible-believing Christianity, because it doesn't have any kind of systematic approach and because it's mostly proof text <laughs> for certain ideas, uh, nobody thinks about things in terms of overall models and patterns. So we looked, uh, for instance, at how Christ himself, everything about Jesus Christ is our model and our pattern. If we want to understand, like, how do you encounter the Holy Spirit, let's look at the progressive ways that Christ encountered the Holy Spirit, for example. If you want to look at what is the church, let's start with what Jesus said about the church. And let's not only look at what he said about the church, but how he made disciples and how they lived as a church during his ministry. Let's start there. And then let's secondarily look at the apostles in the New Testament church in terms of how they lived. Does that make sense? So that's kind of our methodologies. So... Um, Tonight we're going to look at what does it mean to love God, because love has become kind of a, and then hopefully we're going to get to a look upon at the subject of grace. Love has become kind of a nebulous term in our in our society. You know, people have I love this and I love that, and sometimes it's I heart this and I heart that on on their bumper stickers, and it's everything from like dog food to God, right? <laughs> I love my dog food or my chihuahua or you know. Uh, 
you know, to some movie or some kind of food or to, I, you know, I love God. And we, like, does that all mean the same thing? And should all that carry the same kind of weight? Um, what does it mean to love God? So who wants to say a couple things about that before we get started? What's that? Unconditionally, okay. Anyone else want to make any comments on what it means to love God before we dive into this? Obedience, Obedience? who said that? Deanna, okay. Yep, we're going to definitely cover that subject tonight. How many people have ever, as a Christian, been less than obedient to God? <laughs> Anyone? No. <laughs> yeah. I only have two hands to write. What? <laughs> I tried. You tried being obedient once? Um, what is it? Anything else? Less obedient or disobedient? Which, which? Okay. <laughs> Teresa? Um, maybe the idea of making him a priority above everything else. So. Okay, excellent. Yeah. yeah, the center. So let's look at some of these things. Uh, let's start with uh, this. what I did. All I did on these this outline is I took the titles from all the weeks. Each of these emphasis, like 1A, 1B, were a week we covered, or one title. Sometimes it took two weeks or three weeks. But uh, I just took some of the most important scriptures we shared. So let's uh, start with Haley, and we'll go left this week. Sometimes we go right, sometimes we go left. Such suspense. Uh, will they go left or right this week? Let's uh, have Haley read Matthew 22, 34 through 30. But please follow along in your own Bible. You'll get more out of it if you do follow along. And uh, as always, just say what translation you're using before you read it. Uh, we won't talk about uh, why we endorse a lot of kinds of translations. We are not uh, uh, from the, uh, you've got to use one particular translation school of thought. But there are better and worse translations, and that's something we covered in the Search the Scripture series quite thoroughly, the three major philosophies of Bible translating <laughs> and, and what their limitations and strengths are. So what, are, what a translation are you using, Haley? The ESV. So if you know Bible philosophy translating, uh, ESV is a literal equivalence philosophy of translating, and probably the best literal equivalence philosophy in terms of accuracy and the easiest in terms of reading level. So it's actually the, uh, the, the beginning Bible we, uh, in, in, we endorse the most. If you're just getting started with the Bible, uh, I highly recommend you consider using an ESV for your first two or three times through the Bible. Go ahead in Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40. Okay. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, he gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend on, depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so let's go through a few things about this verse. Who knows in, in a very brief way who the Pharisees and Sadducees were and what their difference was? And maybe compare them to major groups today to maybe to help understand. Christine? Um, 
Uh, well, they weren't all priests, but they were, they were devoted followers of Yahweh or, or God. Some of them were from the Levitical priest. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, yeah. And do you know any specifics on how they... Yeah, well, that's very good. Anyone else? Uh, Lena. Right? The, take the thought of they didn't believe in the resurrection further. There's, that's a subset of a bigger idea. They didn't believe in the supernatural or the spiritual, period. They didn't believe in miracles, resurrections, angels, demons. Uh, you know, like if you said, I prayed to God and he healed me, they would be like, what's wrong with you? Like, you must be a nut. So, um, so that would be the Sadducees, right? What else do we know about the Sadducees? Anybody know anything else about the Sadducees? Um, the Sadducees are actually very similar to what would be called mainline Protestantism. You're, she threw out a standard... Sorry, go ahead and tell the standard Sadducee joke. They were. No, I was no, oh, I was going to tell that joke, but they were so Sadducee. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, if if uh, anybody remembers what we covered with uh, the la the second semester last year on the fundamentalist versus modernist debate, which was called the what in England? What did like. Uh, uh, Who's the, uh, what did Charles Spurgeon call it? The downgrade controversy. And so when the idea of evolution first started entering the, the discussion in, in Christian circles and the, the idea of anti-supernaturalism, the modernist uh, took away uh, concepts like the virgin birth, the resurrection, and so forth. But they also took away through a concept called higher criticism the historical teaching about who wrote various books of the Bible. So they said the idea that uh, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy were revealed to, to Moses by God, that's nonsense. They were stories that were fictional, and they were written by four different... Uh, they, the, the original theory by a guy named Julius Wellhausen was call, called the Documentary Hypothesis, and he basically postulated that there were the Yahwists, the Elohists, the Deuteronomists, and the priestly class. And each of them had uh, four accounts of creation and the history of Israel and the judgment on Egypt and the, the Passover and the Exodus and the wanderings in the wilderness and so forth. And that these four were later, uh, by, by editors and redactors, welded into one story. And that all this happened maybe a thousand years after Moses. Whereas, of course, the, the, both Jesus, Jesus, what's the problem with that? Jesus quotes Moses as being the author and historically accurate. So that theory is saying Jesus is wrong. So that's a little bit of a problem, I would hope you would see, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. Hopefully you know that if you, if you uh, follow any pastor like this one, that I'm going to be wrong sometimes. I hope you want to follow a pastor who's wrong most of the time. <laughs> right? 
right? So, you know, what they're basically saying is when Jesus quote Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, word for word, as if, and he asserts Moses' authorship time and time again. He quoted from Deuteronomy more than any other Old Testament book. So you're basically saying Jesus was less informed than he should have been. And we know better than all that now. And that was, uh, that's sort of the essence of modernism. Okay. So modernism has uh, start in starting in the mid 1800s has affected every branch and type of Christianity. Most Roman Catholic priests would be modernists. Uh, over 90 some percent of Episcopalians are modernist. Uh, most uh, the Methodists are having a big fight that's gone on for 150 years now. Uh, between the modernists and the biblical conservatives in their denomination and recently the Methodists, the conservative biblical Methodists are starting to win. Although that didn't look like that was going to be the case uh, 20 years ago. Etc. Right? So most in the Lutheran church, they, the Lutheran split between the Wisconsin Synod Lutherans, the Lutheran, the Missouri Synod Lutherans who are biblically conservative and the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which are biblically modernist or liberal. So they would not only not say that the various characters that were supposed to have written this, like Paul didn't really write this, the New Testament, they, it evolved from his writings. Like uh, I went to a liberal seminary on purpose, because I always go, might as well, I always figure you might as well study at the feet of the enemy. And uh, so, I went to a liberal seminary on purpose, and uh, you know I was taught that that Paul wrote six of the thirteen books that are attributed to his name, but he didn't write all thirteen books that the, the church always thought Paul wrote. So we're saying that beginning in the first century, the church has been wrong. So most mainline Protestants went with the modernist idea. What, what we know today as evangelicalism or fundamentalism rose as a reaction to that in the very same way the Pharisees approached the scriptures. Tends to be performance-based. Tends to be uh, claiming the Bible has, is literally accurate, but tends to downplay literary devices like uh, imagery and word pictures and metaphors and so forth in favor of literal interpretations, right? Tends to be very external-based uh, or what you might say is environment-based. Whoever, who was brought up in a kind of Christianity where you're supposed to avoid hanging around the bad people, right? <clears throat> because uh, fundamentalist Christianity tends to have the same frameworks the Pharisees had and that's very much uh, avoid hanging around the bad places with the bad people. And what Jesus was doing in Matthew 16 when he took his, his disciples to, uh, to the gates of Hades, which was the name of a place of worship at the, at the mountains of Caesarea Philippi, where Herod's uh, palace was, he was saying, I'm going to build another kind of people. When he says, I'm going to build my church, he's making that in contradistinction to what Israel, Moses' church had practiced. Moses' church was supposed to be the mediators of God's presence and God's reconciliation and God's truth to the world. And they refused to do it time and time and time again, withdrawing into themselves and avoiding the bad people. 
And Jesus is saying, I'm going to take, create the kind of people who go right to the bad people and set them free. A very different spirit of Christianity. That's why he took them to the gates of Haiti to say the gates of Haiti, because it was a place of pagan worship where they had sex with goats and uh, as part of the worship. It was about as disgusting of a place, and the Pharisees would never have gone near that place. And Jesus is saying, that's going to be where our target audience is. <laughs> right? So, uh, that, you know, the Sadducees were very oriented towards political solutions. They felt like if we cooperate with Herod and so forth, if we get the right social welfare programs, we can do good for Israel. Sound familiar at all? We are right. If you know we have the right welfare programs and so forth, we can we can do much good through government, right? <clears throat> the Pharisees hated government. <laughs> they were like, we got to disband the government, especially the government of the Romans. They thought the Messiah would be a guy who would politically come and conquer the Romans and cook him out of there. Almost all Israelites in the time of Jesus were expecting a political Messiah. They didn't have room in their thinking for a, a Messiah who was going to deliver them from their spiritual enemies and change the world from the inside out, from the bottom up, by creating a new kind of people and a new humanity. They, didn't have, they couldn't understand that message, and they, they didn't dislike that message so much that they decided we've got to kill this. All right? All right, so how did we get into all that? That was just the opening line. Like, what's the Pharisees and Sadducees? So if you study a little bit about who the Pharisees and Sadducees are, you'll get more out of reading your, your Gospels, right? Now, the Sanhedrin, which was 70 people who directed Israel's uh, affairs underneath Herod and underneath the Roman governors like Pilate, uh, they had some Pharisees on the, on the Sanhedrin, but mostly Sadducees. Okay. Then, uh, who knows what a lawyer was? I hope you all know a few lawyer jokes. They're pretty good sometimes. But uh, <laughs> what was a lawyer? An expert in the Levitical law. An expert in the Levitical law or the Mosaic law. And in what, uh, how does the Mosaic law come to us in Scripture? Two ways, one of which most people today would be ignorant of. Well, that two written ways. The prophets and the, the first five books. Uh, no, not, not, not heading the right direction there. So first of all, there was the actual commandments themselves, the Ten Commandments, which are listed in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is Exodus chapter 20 word for word. Right? But what do you study if you go to law school? Case law. Who said that? Bob Tyler. Thank you. So the rest of the law is actually anticipatory hypothetical case laws. So in other words, the rest of Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all the way through the teachings of Jesus are basically saying, this is what thou shall not commit adultery means. This is what thou shall not kill means. So remember, if you have an, an ox... 
and he escapes from your property and he gores someone to death, if you did not know that your ox was, was, a, was a mean goring type of ox, you were let off the first time. But, at, but if it happened again, you were guilty of manslaughter because you should have restrained the ox once you knew that your ox had that kind of disposition. So now you're, you violated thou shall not kill. So, for instance, Luke 8, uh, Leviticus 18 is all kinds of sexual prohibitions that tell us what thou shall not commit adultery means. Because in the Bible, the, the first represents the whole. So in the commandments, commandment number one, who knows the, the, at least the short version of commandment number one. I hope you all know that one. Lena, you know that. <laughs> well, that's a good. That's a, that'd be like the uh, one of those paraphrase versions. Go ahead. Who, say it, someone. What'd you say? Right. There's another interpretation of the word before. Besides, who said that? The Tony. That's correct. That besides is a better probably interpretation of it. So someone had said something about putting God first earlier, and I said, well, it sort of means that. Um, you shall have no other gods in competition with me. And Jesus, for, for instance, Jesus says in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be, you know, my father and I will come to him and disclose ourselves to him. So he's putting some context in what it means to love God, right? He's anticipating that it's going to become some sloppy, nebulous mess eventually. And he's kind of heading that off at the pass, right? So you have, shall have no other gods before me, instead of me, besides me, or in competition with me are all pretty valid interpretations of the Hebrew wording there. That's Exodus 3.14, and that would be God's most important name in the Old Testament when Moses asked, you know, who is God. So um, when uh, a lawyer is someone who's an expert not only in the Ten Commandments, but in the case laws that apply the Ten Commandments. So, for instance, uh, you know, the commandment to keep holy the Sabbath day is on the first, you know, the first five commandments— deal with what it means to love God. Jesus summed them up. Is the first commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, which is a quote from Deuteronomy. And that commandment represents the whole. So all breaking of all commandments in Bible thinking is first and foremost a breaking of thou shalt have no other gods besides me. If you steal, you're saying, that that materialistic thing you stole is was more of a god to you than God was, in your heart. And what's that? What if you borrowed it? If you borrowed it, yeah. depends on if you had the person's permission, of course. That would be the biblical law regarding it. Well, well, I don't know if I want to digress into that side issue too much, but in the law. In the law, there was provision for when you stole to pay back with a 20% penalty. You could actually, like, if you couldn't afford to pay your tithe this week, you could actually pay it next week with a penalty. So you could actually borrow from the bank of God as an Israelite. And you would, 
uh, that's re really what Z uh, let's 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 stay with this class, guys. Okay, so um, remember Zacchaeus when Jesus says Zacchaeus, I must come dine at your house today, and remember when he encounters who Christ is in his mind and heart, he says, I'll pay back four times what I've uh, stolen, right? If he's cheated anyone, so forth, right? And if he's stolen from people. <coughs> so what he's doing is on purpose. He's a guy who knows the law, and he's turning the order around exponentially because you were supposed to pay back with a one-fourth penalty if you stole, and he's saying, I'll pay back four times as much. That number doesn't just come out of nowhere. He's actually a guy who knows the law, and he's, he's saying, the grace of God has impacted me, and grace, as you study it in Scripture, always takes you well beyond the, the minimum requirement of the law into an extravagant response. When we tell the, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, prodigal doesn't mean a bad guy like everyone thinks it means today. It means extravagant. And the story's actually about an, a prodigal extravagant father whose response is way out of proportion with his son's sin. His son, you know, comes to his senses when he's feeding the swine and says, oh my God, what am I, have I done? I've taken my inheritance when I wasn't ready for it and when my father hadn't even passed away. And I've wasted it on harlots and partying and, you know, wine, women, song, and all that kind of stuff. Maybe he was a pothead, and I don't know. But <laughs> no. And he's come to his senses, and he goes back to ask his father's forgiveness, and it says his father came running to him. Middle Eastern men didn't run. That would have been considered a very undignified thing to have done. His father is saying, I don't care about protocol, manners, or anything I am rejoicing that one sinner has returned to God. Jesus tells it in the context of rebuking the Pharisees because they were rebuking him because all kind of tax gatherers and sinners were coming to him. And he's saying, you guys have missed the point. That's the whole point of, this, of Luke 15. He tells three parables in a row, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the prodigal son. To the, he's telling it to the Pharisees. They're his audience. And he's saying, you should have been like the father in this story. Instead, you're like the older brother in the story. What did the older brother do? He, yeah, he's, he was a performance-based guy. And he said, I've never wasted your money, and I've stayed here, and I've continued to labor and so forth. And, and he was basically a typical religious figure, of like the person, kind of person who goes to church today in our performance-based Christianity. He's saying, I've done all the right things. I deserve, and you never had a party for me. And he refused to go in and celebrate. You know, that would be like, how many people have, have experienced kind of Christians when, oh my God, that harlot came to Christ. I, I don't know if I'm going to touch that. Right? He's, he's, he's not willing to go in and celebrate. His father's throwing this big feast because this guy who's been a drunkard and, uh, you know, uh, whatever, loose morals and everything else has come back. His father's having a party about it. And he's a little ticked. He's like, who invited them to our church? They're going to get the carpet dirty. <laughs> you, know? you know, I have a pastor friend who started a... What's that? Yeah, that's true. The carpet's disgusting. I have a pastor friend who had an inner city church. 
in Indianapolis, and uh, uh, the church had all these people who were in their third generation, and they were upwardly mobile, middle-class, rich people, and they no longer lived in the city because over time they prospered and moved out to the suburbs, but they still liked their beautiful church they built a few generations ago. So they would come, and this guy started uh, leading inner-city neighborhood kids to Christ, and he led so many of them to Christ. He put up a hoop in the parking lot, and he was playing hoops with the inner-city kids, and and he started reading programs for him and all sorts of things, very similar to our Kids Rock House, if any of you know what, and our Whiz Kids and all that. And he got fired because the people were upset that he was bringing, you know, a hundred and some of these inner city kids with their head lice and bed bugs and everything else into, our, into the church. You know, that's been an issue at our church. We've had a lot of people who are like, hey, you're leading all these people to Christ with bed bugs? Yeah, we are. <laughs> and uh, we we baptize the bed bugs with them, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and a bottle of beer. Uh, <laughs> so um, that's that's the whole story of the prodigal God and the prodigal son, in a nutshell. Let's get back on track. So. Um, I'm just trying to open up Matthew 22. The lawyer is an expert in not just the Ten Commandments, but in the case laws. Like in Leviticus 23, there's a whole chapter about celebrating the Sabbath and the three festivals that were part of what it means to keep the Lord's Day holy was, you know, Passover, the Feast of Booths and Feasts of Weeks and so forth. And it was basically case law for, for what the commandment that, to keep holy the Lord's day meant. Right? All right, somebody read. Uh, next one is Teresa, Galatians 3, 1 through 3, and then skip down to verse 24. And then verse 24. Okay, gotcha. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay. So hold that thought because I actually got off track on the outline and jumped down to, to uh, emphasis 2A, and we're supposed to be back on emphasis 1A. My bad. So just keep that thought. We'll read that one again. Uh, my bad. Who, uh, who's got, uh, Jonathan, give us Exodus 21 through 11. I ju jumped ahead a little bit <laughs> just to confuse you. <laughs> Chapter 20, verse 1 through 11. Generation of 
those who hate me. I have shown steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female, female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All right. So just so you know, these issues are very much with us today, right? So what does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? Bradbury. Right. So, um, so anyone else want to state that and say a different, same, same thing in different words? Okay, so that actually means both what you said and what Bradbury said. So first of all, you know, if you say, you know, GD is a curse word or Jesus Christ is a curse word or whatever, certainly using the Lord's name in an irreverent way is, uh, is, is part of what that means, right? The Jews knew that so much that somebody mentioned YHWH, I am that I am, uh, uh, Samuel brought that out from Exodus uh, 3.14, which sometimes is people in English will say Jehovah, but it's really Yahweh or Y-H-W-H. We don't really know how it was pronounced back then because the Hebrew alphabet doesn't actually have vowels. But the Jews called it the Tetragrammaton, which is uh, uh, tetra is Greek for four, and grammaton, four words. And uh, it means I am that I am, or I be that I be, or I, he who causes to be, or something like that. The prime mover, the, the, and so forth. And the Jews actually did not use that name. Does anybody know why? Yeah, they said it was too holy. It would, in other words, it would be impossible not to be violating the commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, if you use that name for God. Now, there were many other names for God, like El Shaddai, the All-Powerful, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, and all that. There's lots of other names for God in the Old Testament that many Jews were willing to use, but they would not use the name Yahweh. That's why in Matthew's gospel, since he's intending to do a lawsuit against Israel to say you missed your visitation of the Messiah you were waiting for, and he's writing to Jews, he calls, uses the phrase the kingdom of heaven over and over again, where the other gospels use the phrase the kingdom of God. Because he did that out of respect for the Jews' usage, that they would say that it would be impossible to take God's name and not do it in an unworthy way. Like, in other words, as a Christian, I'm inevitably going to fall short of, of being a Christian, right? This is what Bradbury brought out. Daniel Cutter brought that point out. Bradbury's point is that to call myself by the name of God to say I'm a Christian and then not to live up to my Christian commitment uh, means to take the name of the Lord our God in vain, right? So that we're guilty of every day is what the Israelites were saying. Like, they're saying, you, uh, you, you Christian are a fairly lousy Christian, <laughs> right? Is anybody not a fairly lousy Christian here? <laughs> uh, any takers? Um, and you don't even know the half of it. And so, therefore, uh, to call yourself by the name of Christ 
is actually to misuse God's name because you should probably say uh, something more like, I'm attempting to be a Christian, <laughs> or I hope I'm a Christian, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> or I, I'd like to be a Christian, but <laughs> I don't know if I can really measure up. So uh, what, what else do I want to point out about these commandments? Um, six days you shall work. That's radical in our culture. You know, the Sabbath was actually based on completed work. What else do I want to point out? Um, the whole thing of visiting the iniquity of the fathers in the, to the third and fourth generation. Do we want to deal with that? Probably not. Um, who can who can speak into what does that mean? Tony? Yeah. Yeah, one of the th distinctions that you have to make is the law also says later that uh, a son shall not be guilty based on his father's sin. Everyone bears their own guilt. So you're, God does not impute guilt to you because of your father or mother's sins, but he does visit the judgment of their iniquity on you. How godly you are affects your children a great deal. Even now, when you don't know who the children are yet. <laughs> it really does. But it doesn't impute guilt to them when you sin. But it does impute consequences to them when you sin. That's a very important distinction that if you study the law carefully, you'll see. Uh, so let's go on to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Uh, no, I keep jumping down a line. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I keep jumping down uh, to the wrong point. Who's uh, next? Uh, Anvesh. Everyone go to Jeremiah. Let me point out while you're turning there that this, uh, these passages from Jeremiah are some of the most often quoted passages in the New Testament from the Old Testament, especially in Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10. In other words, um, in other words, uh, these passages about the new covenant are actually quoted in the new covenant several times. Go ahead, Don Vish. Okay, so a couple things from this, uh, these verses 
they, it talks about my covenant, which they broke. So a very important biblical truth is starting with the first covenant, the covenant of creation or the covenant of dominion, also called the covenant of Adam or the Adamic covenant. For, starting with that and through the eight major covenants in the Bible, uh, we, the people of God are always covenant breakers. And in fact, the, 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 the whole point of the coming of the new covenant is that it's inevitable that the people of God are going to be covenant breakers, so God himself is going to fulfill the covenant for us. So that's a very important thing that it's saying. Uh, the idea of the God being a husband and God being a father is actually not New Testament. It's the whole Bible. So although I was a husband to them, they were, Israel is, uh, especially Hosea and other prophets call Israel an unfaithful bride, right? The whole theme of the bride of Christ of the New Testament is just taking Old Testament teaching and carrying it into the New Testament as all the New Testament does with everything. That's why you cannot understand the New Testament until you become an expert in the Old Testament. You just can't. Um, You'll, you'll inevitably interpret it quite wrongly if you don't know the Old Testament thoroughly. Um, this thing about writing the law within them and writing on their hearts, remember in Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, don't think I, I came to be a modern evangelical. That's my, I, I, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to put the law into force. And he goes on to say that if, if you teach others to disregard the law, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And almost all of evangelicalism today is a philosophy called antinomianism, which basically uh, you'll get either legalism or licentiousness because when you, when you basically say because we're of the spirit, we don't have to follow God's law, then we are creatures made in the image of God who's a lawgiver and a law keeper. So you'll make up your own laws, and you make the laws about things the Bible, about how you wear your hair and how you dress and, and all kind of things like that, uh, but not about what the Bible actually considers important. Or you actually dismiss law altogether and turn the grace of God into lawlessness or licentiousness. Ah, I'm born again. I've been forgiven. It doesn't matter. I can go ahead and be an alcoholic or a porn addict or keep beating up... Josiah on Thursday nights or something. Hopefully not. He probably beats me up. What's that? Yes, you do. My my wife beats me up every morning. She gets up at six. I don't get up till nine. All right. All right. Uh, um, so. Um, you know, what this is saying is um, I'll write my law within their hearts. In other words, it's going to become your inward desire and attitude to, to do my law. Not that you're going to become antinomian. Uh, and I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Because God has never, you know, today we have what we call radically individualistic Christianity. It's about you and the sinner's prayer. And then you even relate to churches and Bible groups on what they can do for me. Not unlike how do I be a part of a mission? Like everybody out there is kind of doing their own thing, and, and, they be, and we've turned churchgoers into consumers, right? Like, oh, I, I like this particular version of consuming that, you know, you know, this guy preaches the way I like or whatever. Great light show, smoke comes out of the 
drum set, you know, <laughs> you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, then he goes on to say the, that everyone will know me from the least to the greatest. Remember, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, right? And that's basically radical. Like he's, he's saying, like a part of the new covenant is everyone will be a knower of God experientially. You know, I don't want to get into this now, but in the Search of Scripture series, chapter 2a, we go through about 30 New Testament words in the Greek of having to do with the knowing of God, and they break down into two categories, knowing scripturally, cognitively, intellectually, and knowing spiritually, experientially. They'll all know me, and this is talking about they'll all experience me in such a way that they know my voice, and they know my heart, and they know my ways, and they know my law, and they care about what I care about, they hate what I hate, and they love what I love. Does anybody think that characterizes your Christian life? Hopefully, progressively so. Growing in maturation and sanctification as a Christian should be that you actually feel the same way God feels about things. Right? All right, so let's, uh, we can't get into all these uh, that much. Uh, Jane, give us John 17, 3. What's the context? Do you know offhand, Jane? There's an important context to John 17. So I'll give it to you before you read it while you're turning there. John 17. John 13, 14, 15, and 16 is John's account of the Last Supper. And as we've talked about many times, he covers very different things than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do at the Last Supper. At Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover the, the giving of the, of the communion meal, uh, the prediction of, of of Judas's betrayal and the prediction of uh, Peter's denial and God's promise to restore him, right? John doesn't cover any of that stuff. John, sa John says that uh, I'm going, you know, like he first washes their feet and that redefines what leadership is. Then he goes on to tell them that he's going to be with the Father and I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And he begins to tell them about the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit and so forth. Then at the end of the Passover supper in John 17, it talks about how they go across the book, Brook Kidron into the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the, also called the, it's an olive garden. It's at the foot of the, of the Mount of Olives. And, uh, and, they, and Jesus, you know, praised of the Father there and so forth. And this is called J Jesus' high priestly prayer. So historically, it once was that like every Christian would know this prayer because this is like one of the most important things Jesus ever said. This is Jesus' last prayer to the Father, and he's saying some very, very, very important things. That's the context. Now, compare that to the modern evangelism. Modern evangelism is to be saved from hell and unto heaven, right? But that has nothing to do with biblical evangelism, nor was it ever the message of the church until uh, about the 1870s and forward. What was the message of salvation biblically? God is saving you from what? Going to hell? What? Yeah, he's saving us from sin, that is from selfishness, self-autonomy, being your own God, your own, uh, your own lust, etc. He's saving you from you. 
That's sometimes called the sin nature or the flesh or whatever. What else is he saving you from? Separation from God. So he's, he's reconciling you to God through forgiveness and so forth so that, that the new covenant is they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. What else? Not to break his commandments. Not to break his commandments. But who else is he saving you from besides yourself? The world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, that's kind of the standard Christian teaching, which is there. In other words, there really is a satanic kingdom, and there really are demons, and you really do, you are no match for them. And you really need a savior. And they're very real enemies, despite our modern, natural-minded point of view that we have. Most Christians today have never cast a demon out or, or seen a demon cast out, but most Christians throughout the centuries did that sort of thing. And I, I've probably cast demons out of around 1,000 people in my Christian experience over the years. It's something very real in the Bible, and it's a very real kind of enemy. And just because we have modern psychology now and, and a Western modern natural mind doesn't mean it's not real. Right. Otherwise, Jesus must have been crazy, right? Because over 25% of his ministry is casting demons out of real people. Was he just accommodating himself to the psychological backwardness of the people of his day? And modern psychology has disproved all that. So once again, Jesus is wrong. How many people have gone to a church where you never saw demons cast out? How many people have read a gospel where there were never any demons cast out? Now, did you notice there was a, what's that? <laughs> yeah, the Thomas Jefferson Bible. He got rid of all that stuff. That's why it's so small. There is such a thing called the Jefferson Bible, by the way, which was his natural-minded view. So he, he liked the, the teachings of Christ as long as you remove the supernatural. Yeah, he was a Sadducee, basically. Yeah. Which is why he believed in government as our Savior. Right? All right, so Jesus is saying eternal life isn't going to heaven. It's a spiritual existence. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual state of being where you know Jesus Christ. And, you know, you know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom thou, that the Father sent. It's a state of being. Like I know God and God knows me and I, you know, and I know his heart, I know his ways, I know the voice of his spirit, I know what his law says. Eternal life is not going to heaven. Heaven's just a byproduct of that. Hopefully not in the near future for most of you. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, 60 years or so from now for most of you. Well, maybe 70, I hope. Even 80. Um, all right, what's the next one? Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. Jonathan, what translation are you reading from? As a true Dominion Academy student. And by the way, in the, Wayne and I are a product of the 70s, and in the 70s, the, the ESV and the NIV and all that didn't exist yet, and NASB was by, considered by far the most accurate Bible. And most, 
Serious Bible people still think the NASB is the best translation overall, although it has mistakes as well, as every translation does. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the breadth and length and height and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do yeah. Now, now that kind of gives some parameters to what it means to know God. So, Jonathan, how do you know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge? What does that mean? That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Everyone knows there's no contradictions in the Bible. There's one. It's actually only a contradiction in English. What's that? But how can you know something that surpasses knowledge? Because in the Greek, it actually means to experientially know what, what surpasses your intellectual ability to comprehend it. How many people have had experiences, say, in a time of worship or alone in your prayer closet where the presence of God was so precious and, and you were felt so close to the Lord and so forth that you probably couldn't describe it very well to someone else? Hopefully we've all had encounters with God like that, right? Right? And, and you know, uh, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2 how... Uh, we have to learn a spiritual vocabulary and combine spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, or otherwise we can't communicate these things. But there's still always, no matter how much our, our biblical vocabulary and our theological vocabulary grows, there's always going to be things about the, the omniscient, the omnipresent, uh, holy, immutable, etc., things of God that, that we couldn't possibly articulate that well right hopefully we grow in our ability to articulate that over time that's part of what it, the bible t calls us to do according to first corinthians 2 but who's like really good at articulating spiritual things so that everyone you talk to gets exactly what you mean and you're never misunderstood does that happen at your house much jeff <laughs> where like no one in the family ever misunderstands something you said does it happen at work? <laughs> no, it does, right? It, it doesn't, right? To know the love of Christ. So, uh, Lena, what translation are you? Do you have? All right. So let's read the same verses out of NIV. Just so you, I, I want you to hear these verses in Ephesians three a couple times. So let's stop right there. Strengthen you with power in through his spirit in your inner beings. Everyone know that you have three parts, spirit, soul, and body. And he's saying that he wants you to be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the resurrected power of Christ in your, in your inner being. Keep going. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's pretty intense if you think, think about what that means. All right, go on. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, 
he grasps how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Does anybody here have the power with all the saints to grasp how wide and deep and broad the love of Christ is? Could could somebody share that perfectly with us? <laughs> Keep going, Vin. That's pretty intense stuff, really. Now, once I did a study, and we actually have some teachings. I don't know if this is on our podcast or not, but I did, did some teachings on just analyzing the prayer life of Paul, like what Paul says he prays for the churches for. This is one of the two main prayers in Ephesians, the, the other one being in Ephesians chapter 1, that he has for the Ephesian church. That'd be a, something good to pray for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, right? I pray that you might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you might be strengthened by, by his spirit in your inner man and so forth. That'd be pretty good stuff to pray for your sister or your friend. Or, right? That gives a lot of context in what it means, that you might be rooted and grounded in love. You know, like think about roots. Like roots mean you can't, you can't move far from the roots, Right? So, you know, like, the, I, I would say there's a lot of things in my life that some, somehow I couldn't describe as being rooted and grounded out in the love of Christ. Right? Like, wow, that, what I do with, you know, sandwiches or what I do with T-shirts or whatever. Like, is everything that I do come out of being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ? Does that describe your life? The way you study your chemistry homework, is it because of how you're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ? All right, let's move on. Habakkuk 2.14. Who's, uh, Tony, you want to give us Habakkuk 2.14, please? Habakkuk, I should say. I always say Habakkuk. Habakkuk. I mispronounce a lot of words, by the way. As Deanna can tell you, she's always, Deanna's always teaching me how to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> yep. Now. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of what's the rest of it? Now, in a in a nutshell, how's that supposed to happen? There's sort of a biblical roadmap to how that happens, right? Well, the Great Commission, yeah, but you know, and, and just to cut to the chase. That would be as every location on earth gets filled with people that are filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Right? So that would mean like in uh, a radical, on fire, zealous, filled with the Spirit, knowledgeable, wise, gracious, serving uh, church everywhere. All right. Uh, let's go on to emphasis 1v. Oh, boy. Uh, loving God, zeal, passion, and fire. 
who would uh, who would say that a has a, grown has grown up enough around Christian circles to say that being zealous about God in some of the ways certain Bible characters are does not necessarily characterize most of the Christians we've known in our churches, right? So let's look a little bit at zeal. So who's next? Uh, what was your name again, sir? Yeah, Joshua. Joshua, why don't you read uh, Philippians 1, 21 and Philippians 3, 7 through 10. Uh, Philippians 1.21, and then jump ahead to Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 10. Just a couple verses that we're selecting out of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 21. Philippians chapter 1, then the 21st verse. That's far enough. That's good. Mainly, I wanted to bring out to live as Christ, to die as gain. So he's saying, if I'm going to live, the substance of my life is Christ. If, if you know, he's in jail when he's writing this, right? And he's facing the possibility of being executed by Nero. So he's, he's actually writing this as if he has a choice in the matter. Guess what? He didn't. <laughs> right? Nero, Nero decided that for him, which, as Christians, we would believe who ultimately decided that for him then? Lena, you've been brought up in a tradition that would know the answer to that. Who decided for Paul when he was going to die? God. Right. God is, is providential. God is sovereign. God, the king's hand is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants. You know, when, Mo, when Pharaoh hardened his heart after each miracle, God pre-predicts that Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. Right? You know, God foreknows and predestines all things, right? So Paul is actually saying, well, I don't know which one I'm going to do. If I live on, I'll be able to continue to help the churches grow, and it's going to be fruitful labors. And uh, if I live on, it's because of Christ. But if I die, that'd be pretty good, too. I'll go be right with Jesus, right? That's what he's saying. So all I'm saying is if you really search your heart, is that like what motivates your heart day to day? Is that what you're thinking at about at your desk at 2.30? <laughs> For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Is that really where we live? It's obviously really where Paul was living, even when he was in jail. Maybe we all need to go to jail just <laughs> Wait a minute. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Any volunteers? No. Uh, chapter 3, then uh, Joshua, go ahead and go to chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Now, the context here, by the way, is Paul is actually talking about um, 
being aware of being performance-based. And so he's saying that if anyone could sort of boast in their uh, pedigree of self-righteous things, he's, he could, right? But he's going to give us an alternative to that. Yes, now we're on chapter 3, verse 7 through 10. Perfect. So, now, um, when he's talking about whatever was gained to me, what is he talking about? Righteousness attained by one's own work. Right. Righteousness attained by one's own work or by your uh, um, birth status as a Jew and so forth. You know, uh, you know, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. If, if there was anyone who could boast in their religious pedigree, it was him. But he counts it as loss. And then uh, you're obviously reading from the King James Version, Joshua. Because in verse uh, 8, the King James uses the word dung. But the English Standard Version and the New American Standard use rubbish. Does anyone have something that in verse 8 uses something else besides dung or rubbish? A translation. What does NIV say, Lena? Rubbish. Rubbish. So who knows what the Greek word for that is? Skubalon. Everyone's a scholar. <laughs> and what does skubalon mean? Yeah. <laughs> so right. So in every language, in every language, there is seven or so different words for feces, right? There's the scientific word, like if you were in the laboratory, you you would might say feces, right? Then there's little kid's word like doo-doo or doggy poo or something. Or something that, um, you know, then there's uh, polite words like bowel movement or something. And uh, then, there's, then there's the street words. And in 1611, when the King James was made, the word that we would say shit for today, which is the street word today, would have been dung. The King James is actually the one English translation that's pretty faithful to the Greek in that respect. It can mean, now, scubalon can actually mean the kind of rubbish that you find at uh, a garbage dump. Like when I was in Mexico, Mexico uh, we preached in lots of colonias and lots of very poor people. Some of the poor people that we, that we ministered to actually live at the city dump. And the only way they eat is they go through the city dump looking for pieces of orange or, or whatever that still have enough uh, food left in them to, to scrape some orange out of it or whatever. Because they were the poorest of the poor, right? And scubalon can actually mean that kind of rubbish. 
So it's not necessarily a wrong translation that the NIV and most modern English translations say rubbish, but dung or S-H-I-T would be actually more biblical translations. But we don't talk about that kind of stuff in polite Christian circles and modern Christianity. But the Bible does. Because God is actually wanting, what, what is Paul trying to do here? Why does he choose such a disgusting word? Yeah, to wake some people up. He's trying to show a contrast. He's trying to say all of us have this tendency to think of ourselves as more, you know, most of us uh, think we're pretty decent Christians, right? And he's trying to say you're full of diarrhea. It's disgusting. It's the stuff you stepped in and, and you can't even take the shoes in the house because they're full of stewy, brown, smelly stuff. And you got to leave them like outside in the backyard and hose them down before, right? He's saying it's disgusting. And he's trying to like make this contrast. Like if you still have an iota of performance-based self-righteousness in your heart, that makes God want to puke. Like when Jesus says, if you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. He's trying to be disgusting on purpose. He's trying to say like, to be not zealous for God, to be just, oh, yeah, God's kind of important to me. I get around reading my Bible once in a while, and sometimes I do what God wants me to do. And, you know, like God's a category in my life. I try not to let him get mess up my life too much, though. Right? He's saying that makes me want to get sick. Like, who's ever, like, I, I had an incident in the last year or so where I didn't quite make it to the job when I was sick, which led to about a half an hour of cleanup work, <laughs> which I couldn't even call Stephen and get him to do. I had to do it myself. It was like, it was like 3 in the morning. I'm like, man, I wish it, it was t I could wake up Stephen, but I can't do that. But, uh, <laughs> like, it's, like, disgusting. I want, like Paul is trying to say that we all have this tendency to self-righteousness. And I'm trying to put it in perspective for you. It's really shitty. It's smelly. It's gross. That idea that we think is just a little bit of self-righteousness and just a little bit of I'm better than you and, and, and these people are the bad people, that really, really, really reeks. That, like, I used to go to the old Cleveland Municipal Stadium to Browns games. And, like, if you know anything about, like, people from Cleveland, <laughs> like, in the restrooms, there were so long lines at these, you know, back when they had, were, had good teams and had, like, 80,000 people. People wouldn't even wait in line to use the toilets. They'd just go in the corners and the waste baskets. It, it's like you can't even get in and out of there without losing your lunch. <laughs> you know, it's this guy. Like I'm saying all this to say, like we really need to do more thinking about what God thinks of our thinking. We're pretty good Christians. Ask, cry out to God, and ask Him to help you see your sin the level He sees it. That's the beginning of going a lot deeper with Christ. Where Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. All right, let's go on to the next verse. We're, uh, I didn't mean to. Who's got John? Who's got the next one? Logan, John 2, 
13 through 17. And then, uh, Adam, get Psalm 69.9 ready to go fast. And uh, quickly, Adam, uh, he's just quoting from Psalm 69, so go ahead and give us that. I love that. The reproaches of those who reproach you. Now, uh, I won't ask for a show of hands so we don't embarrass anyone, but how many people uh, have had an anger management problem at times for self things? I know a few of you have, you know, because as your pastor, I worked with you on that, right? I know that was a major deal in my life, right? Which, what is anger management for self things? It's just childishness on, what, what is road rage? It's narcissistic, childish, shallowness taken out of proportion. Like people who have anger management problems are proud, selfish. They're, they're collapsed into a very small world around themselves, right? But this is about something different. This is about Jesus having so much zeal for his Father's name and glory that his zeal for the house of God has actually consumed him. It caused him to, to, to sit down and braid a whip together. So it wasn't some, like, out-of-control reaction. And now, if let me tell you, I know a little bit about money, having been a, owned a financing company and worked for a financing company for nine years and then owned one for 15 or more years. You don't, like, throw people's money all around the temple with, without them standing up to you. Unless you got one H of an anointing. <laughs> like, in other words, like, nobody stood up to Jesus when he did this. In other words, the anger level he came at this, the zeal level, was pretty darn intimidating. Now, have any of us ever lost our temper on behalf of God like that? Do we really care about what God cares about on that kind of level, that we hate what he hates? Think about some of the modern issues of uh, abortion, human trafficking, racism, exploitation of the poor. Do you know why there's payday lending places? Because the poor people always pay more for everything. Because much wealth is made on the fact that poor people don't have good financial management skills. Right? And it's, it's exploitation. Now that drives a lot of business in our country. And Jesus isn't upset that they're selling in the temple. What's he upset about? Because they're selling in the court of the Gentiles, which was an area of the temple that was designated as the place the holy presence of God was to be mediated to the lost world around them. 
And the, the Jews were so selfish and they were so religious and self-righteous and they were so hateful of those who don't, the bad people who don't know God, that they didn't see any need for the court of the Gentiles anymore. It didn't serve any purpose in their way of doing life. Now, bring this down to where we live. How much room is there in our cultural Christianity, in, our, in our, the way we do Christian community, at Grace Christian Fellowship, how much room is there for the court of the Gentiles? How many different ways have we made it to reach out to those who need to be discipled? Isn't it the case that 80 or 90% of the people who come in our door are, don't know most of the basic things about Christianity, right? Thankfully, we have developed hundreds and hundreds of Bible studies like this for that purpose and so forth, and many of you people are involved in working that every day. But shouldn't all Christians be working that all the time, every day? And are you content that, that uh, are you content to be in a place, well, well, I thank God that Sam Chen Poon, uh, you know, knows the Bible enough and he's read the foundational books and understood the theology enough that he's taken Solomon Dickerson under his wing. That's wonderful, but what have, what is that, you know, have I done that? Have I got to the place where I know so much about scripture and theology and biblical studies and so forth that I'm ready to, to take someone into, no matter who I meet, from what walk of life, from what education level, from what socioeconomic status, from whatever color, from whatever nation, from whatever uh, cultural background, can I walk them through to the fullness of knowing God? And is that something that really I'm passionate about? Follow me and you'll become... Oh, I thought it means that you'll just become religious. Like I go to church on Sundays and I don't, I don't dress like the bad people. And I don't hang around the bars that the bad people hang around and whatever. But how, how much have I actually learned how to fish? How, how good of a fisherman am I? And is that even a major goal that, that consumes me every day? You know, you know, Bradbury, you're working with this guy, Kevin, one of your first people you've ever worked with, right? And it's, that's the nat natural progression. Bradbury was uh, an agnostic and an alcoholic and so forth when he came to us, what, two, three years ago? About three years ago, probably now. And now you're mature enough that you're starting to help a young guy in, that was sort of in the same boat as you grow, right? But that's what we all should be doing, right? How long did Jesus disciple the 12? <coughs> Three and a half years. How many people have been not, aren't that great at fishing and you've been a Christian three and a half years or more? So are we, are we really as biblical Christians as we think we are? Uh, is it a major goal of our life? Do we have practical things like uh, I want to memorize 2,000 scriptures and I want to study apologetics and I want to work on my social skills and I want to study enough history and philosophy and political science that I can work with people if they're from uh, Central Africa or Singapore or some strange place like that. <laughs> or, <what>? Whoa! <laughs> no, I'm just So, uh, 
No, don't we have don't do you, don't we have stuff like if if God brought us somebody from uh, Taiwan, I might not know how to really help them. But what did Paul tell us? To become all things to all men that we might win the more. Like it's supposed to be a goal of yours as a Christian to know how to work with any kind of person and bring them forward. So what do we how, what do we do about evangelism today? We basically invite them to church and hope the professional people get them saved, right? Is that, what we, is that how we minister? Now, I think it's important as part of how you evangelize and disciple to get them on our territory in the sense of get them into Christian community and so forth, and the whole community plays a role. But that doesn't mean like your responsibility is just to invite them to, to the meeting and hope the professional people step in and save us, right? Is that the, what Jesus really wants you to get out of this Bible study? I don't think so, Tim. All right, somebody give me 2 Kings chapter 10. We'll just finish uh, point emphasis 1B here. So we're just talking tonight about what it means to love God. Hopefully it's, it's challenging you a little bit. Is this challenging anybody about what it means to love God? I hope. Who was, who was next? Adam, is that you? Yeah, we're jumping. Yeah, we're only hitting certain spots because for time's sake. Yeah, you know, we're actually supposed to read the whole chapter, but we don't have time. So just hit 16, 19, 28. We'll talk about it, but everyone should probably read the chapter. But I, we can't, we don't have time for it tonight. Hopefully. And he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride on his chariot. And verse 19. Now therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers from all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. Verse 20, and Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. Uh, so you got verse 19 and maybe 28. Did you read 28? And 28. Okay. 28. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. So I wish I we had, please read the whole chapter for yourself sometime. But, you know, Jehu says, come and see my zeal for the Lord. And he's doing a play on words on, on purpose. He said, you know, uh, Ahab served Baal a little, but I'm going to serve him a great serving because he's about to kill all the prophets of Baal. So, we, you know, we have this very sanitized version of Christianity and so forth, and I'm not saying you should go out and kill all the prophets of Baal. <laughs> but I am saying Jehu's uh, zeal was something that could be seen. Are you able to say, hang out with me and you'll see what it means to be zealous about God? You'll get infected with it. Right? And you'll love 
what God loves, you'll hate what God hates. So re read the whole story sometime, but he basically tricks them into saying he's going to have this great sacrifice for Baal, and then what he does is he kills all the worshipers of Baal. <laughs> that was the sacrifice to Baal, but um, loving God involves, uh, well, let's do, uh, let's quickly do Isaiah 9, 7. Who's next? And then uh, Byron, just come right back with Matthew 3, 11, and uh, Abigail, do Romans 10, 1 through 3. Byron, go ahead and do Matthew 3.11. So Abigail, Romans 10, 1 through 3. Now, put all the, putting all these verses together, I would say that it's very important that our zeal has wisdom and knowledge behind it. Whoever, has anybody had like a fairly dramatic conversion that you might be able to describe your first year or two as a Christian as being zealous but, not, but lacking a little knowledge and wisdom? <laughs> right? So I'm not, I'm, not, um, I'm not at all like diminishing knowledge and wisdom, but I am saying that zeal has to have passion. It has to have fire. Uh, you know, it says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire was used to purify metals. The Bible says in, in the Psalms that, uh, it's that like, like silver is refined seven times. So the word of the Lord is refined, like silver refined seven times. Like you, you brought, you used fire to bring the silver to a certain heat so that the impurities could be taken out, right? So fire speaks of holiness in the bible it speaks of zeal but it speaks of passions fire spreads pretty rapidly doesn't it right so i'm just trying to get us a little bit of thinking about what it means to be zealous i have a feeling that complacency in my opinion is a little bit like flypaper you know you ever been dealing with a substance that was sticky and you're trying to peel this off but it sticks on you and then you every time you do something it sticks you a different way or whatever i i i think that i think that we're living in a christian culture that's grown very mediocre and very complacent and very compromised with the world around us and i would encourage you to get into hours of reading so much scripture that you begin to get into the mind of scripture and understand the kind of zealous people that are in the bible versus the the standards of our churches in our day because i think they're very far apart and i think that applies to the average christian like we uh, a lot of what the mega church is about is we take 
they, you know, they've done studies on this. A lot of people go to a church where the pastor is very zealous and on fire. And somehow we think, I'm more zealous and on fire because I hear this guy speak. But is that where we're living? So the word zealous, zealous, excitement of mind, ardor, great warmth of feeling, fervent of spirit, and ardor. Well, I don't know what I'm going to do because we can't take uh, this much time to go through uh, all these. That, that's We're going to stop here for tonight. But um, that was just uh, what we covered in a couple weeks, uh, a couple years ago, and more. These Actually, I just took some of the most important verses from two of the teachings we did. Uh, what, that would have been the fall of 2015. <laughs> but I, I guess I just want to challenge us today. Um, let, let's read. Uh, let's read one more verse before we quit. Somebody go to Hebrews four. Let's go to fourteen through sixteen. Who's the next reader? Daniel, why don't you read Hebrews four for us? We've talked about this before, but I kind of want to throw this out for you. This this is probably the most important Christian truth God has ever helped me with. So if you have any, those of you who know me, if you have any respect for what God's done in my life, if you, uh, you know, if even if you don't, I'm just submitting to you, I've walked with God 43 years. You know, I've planted four churches that have started schools and things like that. But you, this is probably the most important Christian truth I could teach you. So hopefully I carry some weight with you. Go ahead, Daniel. All right, so let me try to do the best I can with this, and then we'll quit. Uh, who knows the word, the Greek word hypocrisis? Anybody know that word? It's the basis of the word hypocrisy. A mask. A mask. Tony, you said that? Yeah. So do you know what, uh, the, what the Greeks did with that word? It's a Greek word. Yeah, so has anybody ever seen that in theater you have the two masks, right? You have the big happy mask and the big sad mask. Those were hypocrisis. Okay, and what I'm what I want to submit to you is that our sinful nature, and often our cultural Christianity, has kind of a false front kind of thing that it breeds in us. And if there was anything Jesus was attacking in the religious people of his own day, it was hypocrisy. So we uh, like we're nasty to our wife on the way to church, and then we get out of the car, and someone's. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Isn't it a great day? The Lord's such a good God and so forth. And I was just nasty to my whole family on the way to church, right? Anyone been there? <laughs> so, or, you know, we, you know, so what? here's what I'm saying. I think even when God starts dealing with you alone with your spirit, by, you know, by his Holy Spirit, I think we have this tendency to want to present a kind of false front to God. Oh, I didn't really mean to lust. Yes, you did. <laughs> you know, like, I, the reason we sin, guess why we sin? Because we love it, right? We're like, you know, St. Augustine in his confessions, 
said uh, a verse we were discussing earlier today, he, or, or our passage. In his confessions, he actually prayed that God would deliver him from his lust, but he said, but Lord, not yet. <laughs> like, like, help me with my gluttony, but can you wait till after the pizza party? <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, help me with my sluggardness after I sleep until noon tomorrow. <laughs> right? You know, help me with my procrastinating with my studies after I watch this baseball game when I should be studying my chemistry, right? <laughs> right? Or whatever. So we all have this kind of tendency to kind of like, even when we're talking alone to God, we have a way of kind of not being intimate with him and not being honest. The number one Christian truth I could help you with is over-confess. Go the opposite direction. If you know your fleshly tendency is, is that self-righteousness, proud and afraid to humble yourself, Go the op- humble yourself so much before God that you draw near to the throne of grace to find help as, as a sinner in time of need and say, Lord, you know, like, I'm not just guilty of this, that, or the other thing. Like, I should probably be considered for the great train robbery. And, you know, like, in other words, like, I confess to everything that's not nailed down in the universe. I'm exaggerating to make a point. You know, we have this tendency to assert our own righteousness. And, and we do that even with God. And I'm saying over-confess, over-humble yourself. Lord, I don't even know the depth of how much pride I have. I don't know the, how, the depth of how much passivity toward the things of God I actually have. I don't know why I can't pass through. Maybe you have a controlling mother that you need to uh, bring in a check or whatever. I don't know why I can't pass through this problem. But I need to draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And I believe the most important truth I could ever teach you is that if you, instead of kind of being like self-justifying and having different little mechanisms to not, to not see how bad it is and call it how bad it is, we have excuse-making, blame-shifting, rationalizing. We're experts at it. We learn it from when we're babies. One of my favorite memories is my oldest daughter, a lot of you know her. Uh, her husband's one of our pastors. Um, I remember her in her high chair, and she had never, she wasn't old enough. You know how a kid eventually gets old enough where you're like, you can't, you got to finish your chicken or your mixed vegetables or you can't have any dessert or whatever. She wasn't even old enough for any of that yet. She was still in her high chair. Yet somehow she was taking her little pieces of chicken and hiding them under her diaper. <laughs> <laughs> because she didn't want to eat them, but, I, but she never even had any experience with being made to eat anything yet. In other words, that dishonesty came natural to her because of our sin nature, right? And we, I'm saying that we all have much deeper than we know this desire to be self-justifying and, and not be as honest with how bad it really is. No one ever comes in here and the first time they come, you go... So tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I came because, you know, I came to Christ 22 years ago, and I'm the worst Christian ever in the history of the world, and I came for help. Did you ever meet anybody like that? I wish I did. Right? Because that's not how we posture in American Christianity, right? Draw near to the throne of grace to be honest, to confess. Confess means to say the same thing God says 
No spins, no blame shifts, no twisting. I'm really pathetic. I'm lukewarm. I ha I've had this fear holding me back that I haven't been able to press through. Fear of what someone thinks of me. Maybe your parents. Maybe your brother that you live with or something. May, you know, like we have all these different things that we put up with in our life that are actually like, they're actually like hooks holding us back. But we can't get honest with them. Draw near to, with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace in time of need. If you could actually go, like, realize that our, our tendency is to deceive God in ourselves and our brothers and sisters and then counteract that by going hard the other way, it will revolutionize your walk with God. And that is, was worth the price of admission. <laughs> if, you, if you could get that, it will change you. But it's not going to come easy. It's not what our flesh is about. It's about like violent men enter the kingdom of God by force. You have to insist on it. You have to kind of say, sit down sometime and make a list of those things that are actually holding you back from going further with God. Lots of times they're a fear of what someone thinks of you, like a, a relationship in your life. Um you know, uh, some kind of habit, some kind of lack of diligence, not just bad habits, but lacking of good habits. It, sometimes, like, I always want to get around to reading the Word more, but I've never actually really done it, right? So, anyway, let's just think on that. Who wants to uh, close this in prayer? Lena, you want to pray for us tonight?